Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, I'm glad you're here today. Thank you for coming to Bible study. We're going to continue journeying through the Gospel of John chapter 19. I think we will end the book of, I mean, the chapter 19 today. But, uh, so this is part three of chapter 19, and we are with Jesus on the cross. But let's begin with our prayer before we study the scripture. So if you have your prayer card, let's, let's pray together. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you, for you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. As we begin our study today, I want to uh, remind you the last thing we studied was the fulfillment of the prophecy that they would, from Psalm 22, that they would cast lots and divide up Jesus' garments. And that's exactly what happened with the soldiers around the cross. But we remember there was the, the, uh, the inner garment, the shirt-type garment uh, that Christ had on that was seamless, undivided, you know, not wo- woven in one piece, and that was left in one piece. They decided not to, which I thought was a very symbolic in many different ways, uh, beautifully symbolic of the kingdom and how it cannot really truly be divided. The body of Christ cannot truly be divided. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one kingdom of God. And as we go on, it says in verse 25, so the soldiers did this. So they did. They cast lots for his clothes. They they were uh, gambling there and seeing who would take this or that. Uh, it, we don't know exactly what they wanted with his garments. Uh, we don't know exactly why. Uh, but it is interesting that they wanted his garments. There was this sense in maybe in some of these Roman soldiers that Jesus was actually this, you know, he was called a king, and they had to write that on the sign. Well, maybe this will be worth something someday. Maybe he is a king. Maybe they'd heard the, the prophecies, if you will, of being resurrected from the dead, that he would rise from the dead. Who knows what they heard? But they definitely wanted his garments. So let's just read a couple of verses here. Verse 25. So the soldiers did this, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
Let's stop right there. That's verse 27. This is a very poignant but very important passage of Scripture, just a couple of verses. I want us to, I want us to think about this. This is a very uh, illustrative uh, of the Gospel of John. John is different from the other Gospels, as we've been talking about all along. John is concerned with giving us deeper theological content and meaning, not just telling the, the story. Not to say that the other gospel writers didn't have, uh, you know, theological importance too. They do, but but John's totally unique in that way, and he's the only one that really mentions this conversation between Jesus and Mary. The others didn't see it as important to mention. Now think about that. This is written probably the last. We don't know exactly what year, but definitely the last gospel written probably in the later years of John's life, so decades after the cross. Okay, John lived to the end of the first century, beginning of the second. We're not exactly sure of the year of his death, but we know that somewhere in there he was very prolific and began writing. He has three epistles in here. He has the book of Revelation in Scripture. So he became quite prolific in writing, but he set about writing the story of Jesus, the gospel, in a different way. Because he knew there were there was a story yet to be told that the church needed to understand. So his gospel was especially written to the church to enlighten the church about the theological things that he had learned along the way. And who's been living with him all these decades? Mary, the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's been living with him. This is a very unique uh, moment at the cross that Jesus... Uh, looks down. I think I think it's important for us to note that who's out there. We have no record of any other of the disciples being there except for John, Peter, James. The others. We, they, maybe they were. Maybe they were in a distant crowd. Maybe they're looking on from afar. We don't know, but we know from the Gospels that John is there. And John, who's the writer, he, he humbly inserts himself. He, he humbly inserts himself, the one whom Jesus loved. He's talking about himself here. He had a special connection with Jesus. We don't know exactly what that was, but we do know. You know, earlier in the the story, we see the one whom uh, Jesus, he leaned on Jesus' breast. There is this special connection between John and Jesus. Uh, and And it's interesting that of all the disciples, he chose John to give his mother to. Now, I want to stop and think with you a little bit about uh, historical thought and teaching on uh, Mary, Mary, Jesus' mother. Uh, Now, she is here with two other women. There's three Marys at the cross, okay? Mary, the mother of Jesus. He tells us Mary, uh, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, we know who Mary Magdalene is. Mary Magdalene is the woman whom he had delivered from seven demons, we heard earlier, maybe a prostitute who had lived a wanton life, but Jesus had saved her. She encountered Jesus. She was one of his most loyal, uh, one of his absolutely most loyal followers and was with him to the very end. Who's Mary, the wife of Clopas? Do we know? Know anything about Mary, the wife of Clopas? We we have some interesting uh, history on this. There is a second century historian. Uh, His name was... Hegesippus, Hegesippus, okay? I think that's H-E-G-G-I, 
S-U-P-A-S, Hegesippus. And he uh, writes in here that Clopas was actually the brother to Joseph. St. Joseph, Mary's husband, who had died earlier in Jesus' life. The one who became the foster father, if you will, for Jesus. So if Mary is, uh, uh, Clopas, I mean, is Joseph's brother, then Clopas is Jesus' uncle. And Mary, the mother, I mean, the wife of Clopas, is Jesus' aunt. So now it kind of makes sense. These two Marys are so close, and they're there together. And why is she there? And she's mentioned, you know, at other points in, in the story of, of Scripture. And so is Clopas. But so now we, we see who's Mary, the wife of Clopas. We have good reason to believe that's a close family. And Mary Magdalene, who's such a caring disciple. And Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think it's very important to see that Mary is there looking upon her son at the cross. Had to be the hardest thing she ever did was to see her son hanging there, battered, beaten, crucified. I, I can't imagine. I mean, can, can you take a moment to just, I mean, most everyone in here has been a parent, some of us not, but can you even imagine? I can't even imagine. Is there been a greater agony that any parent has ever gone through than to watch this? Probably not. And she's alone. Jesus has cared for her for years. We don't know when Joseph died. We don't know how Joseph died. We believe that he must have died in Jesus' teen years uh, or very early adulthood because he's never mentioned after Jesus's found, you know, they were on their way to, they were in Jerusalem for the feast, and Jesus got left behind. He was about 12 or 13 years old then, and, and, and uh, he was left behind, and they had to go back for him. We know Joseph was still around then. We never hear of Joseph after that in Scripture. Uh, but, but Mary, so Jesus has cared for his mother. He was a carpenter. He learned the trade from his dad, from Joseph. He learned how to care for his mom. He was a good son. But there came a point where Jesus had to begin his public ministry. He knew his calling from the Father in heaven. He had to begin his public ministry. And do you remember when he began his public ministry? Do you remember when Jesus began his public ministry? I used to be involved in father's business. Um, okay. No. Uh, the, he, he, he said uh, that we studied it in, in the first part of the book of John, in chapter 2, I think. Remember the, what was his first miracle? The wine at the wedding, the wine, the water turned to wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. This is when we see Jesus' first public miracle. This is kind of the beginning of his ministry. And also, interestingly, that's the last time we've heard of Mary. Think about that. Of all we've studied in the book of John, we haven't heard of Mary since that wedding in Cana of Galilee in the beginning. So John has two very important mentions of Mary the mother of Jesus, in his gospel. And they both, interestingly enough, are an encounter where Jesus speaks to her with some unique words we're going to talk about. One at the beginning of his ministry, the wedding, one at the end of his ministry. It is really almost his last words from the cross. Okay? Beginning and end, he talks to his mother. Yes, did jump he, in. Did he begin his ministry when he was... 30-ish, is that when it... Yeah, that's, we, we can't say exactly, but we do feel about 30-ish. 30 to 33 uh, was his, the three years of his ministry. Um, now, 
Remember what he said to Mary. Mary, the, remember the wedding in, in, in Cana. The, the, the family had run out of wine. It's going to be a big embarrassment at a big party to have run out of wine. She goes to Jesus and she tells him, they've run out of wine. You know, you need to do something. And, and do you remember Jesus' response to her? We studied this. You may go back and listen to the podcast again because I won't go all through it. What is that to me? Or His phrase was, woman, what is that to me? Now, that was a very curious phrase because in, in modern English, okay, I wouldn't say that to my mom. You know, if we're having a party and my mother comes up to me and asks me for something, uh, <laughs> we just had a big party for my mom. She turned 90. We just had a big celebration, okay, at, at her church up in Newton, and we had cake and, you know, punch and friends and family, and, and uh, all the time we're setting up and getting ready, she's over there vacuuming the carpet and sweeping off the sidewalks, and the mom, just sit down, you know, just relax, this is your day. And, and no, I can't have it looking like this when people are coming up. And uh, in, in the process, I wouldn't have said to her, woman, what business is that of yours? Okay. She would have looked at me. I mean, I would never speak to my mother that way. Okay. So understand Jesus didn't either. Jesus was not being a smart aleck when he said, woman. Okay, he wasn't being that. We're gonna, yes, I see a comment. Brooke said she even tried to take the broom from, <laughs> from her grandma. Good luck with that. She wanted to do it, and, and she wouldn't let her. She wouldn't let her. No, no, no. She was stubborn. Uh, and she listens to these broadcasts. I love you, Mom. She listens to these podcasts. So uh, we're just uh, talking about how dedicated and loyal a servant you are. So, uh, But I want you to I I would not have been a smart aleck to her, nor was Jesus. Jesus wasn't being a smart This word woman in the Greek, let me write it on the board for you. We did this back then, but let's do it again. It's G-U-N-E, and it's transliteration, English transliteration, and it's pronounced gune, gune, okay? So phonetically, we might say, sometimes I spell these Greek words phonetically because they're easier for me to read off the board. Gune. Did you recognize that one, Brooke? Because yeah. Brooke took Greek in, in college. Gune. So what does it mean, Brooke? How, 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 what did you learn that this word meant? Gune. It means woman. It's specifically... Yeah, it's been a while. It specifically is an address of respect. Madam. My lady. Okay, th- we're trying to put it into English now, okay, as a word of respect. And I think it's important to note that Jesus used that at the beginning of his ministry, and he's using it again at the end of his ministry. What possible reason could Jesus, why didn't he just say, hey, Mom, that's not my business. Okay, it's not my time yet. I I think it was to show, I think John uses this word. John records this. John remembers this. He's been living with Mary a long time, taking care of her. And he remembers how Jesus used these words these two times. And I think he wants to show us that Jesus was officially saying, you know, I'm, I'm not under your authority anymore, Mom. I'm under my father's authority. So he calls her woman, not his mother. Okay? And at the cross, he calls her woman. He doesn't say, Mom. Mom, I'm going to take care of you. Mom, I've got an idea here. Mom, I want you to go live with John. No, it's woman. He's still under the authority of his father right there on the cross. He's doing his father's business. Like you had heard that phrase. I think that came from his, uh, you know, do you not know I must be about my father's house and my father's business? Jesus is on the cross. 
doing his father's business. It's very important to his father that Mary be pointed out in the gospel and that she be pointed out for who she is, a woman of great respect, a woman of high honor, a woman who now is going to be without her son and her care and her livelihood. Now, I'm going to insert something here. might be a little controversial to some of you. Okay, but that's okay. I don't shy away from controversy. You do not have to agree with me when I teach these classes, okay? But I'm just going to tell you what I've learned and what I know and what I believe, okay? Mary, I believe, history has taught us, and I believe this scripture is even teaching us. Mary was perpetually, forever, a virgin. Protestants sometimes have problems with that because they think that gives them an edge up on the Catholics to argue about Mary. Well, Mary wasn't a virgin because Jesus had other brothers and sisters. The Bible says Jesus had other brothers and sisters. Now, the Bible says Jesus had other relatives. Okay, When it says brother and sister in the Bible, the word is adelphia okay, in the Greek. Okay, Adelphia, which, which is the same word used to connote my brother or my cousin, my close relative. Okay, Greeks didn't know a difference between a, a brother and a cousin. Okay, it, as far back as the Hebrew people, the Hebrews didn't either, because God had always had this thing where if you're, you know, if you die, you just come under your kids come under the family of your brother because you've got to be a father and a and uh, to the family, okay? So there's a closeness here between these brothers and sisters of Jesus, but they were not, could not, have been blood relatives of Jesus by birth of Mary. Why do I say that? Because there is no way Jesus would have given Mary from the cross to John to go live with him for the rest of her life if she had three other brothers and a daughter there in town. It just wouldn't happen. In Jewish tradition, it would not happen. She ended up living with him in Ephesus. He lived, John finished his life up in Turkey, okay? What we call as Turkey today. So this is an amazing point that Scripture teaches us that we sometimes miss because we're so caught up in our anti-Catholic sentiments sometimes as Protestants. So we want to get rid of those anti-Catholic sentiments or... Let's look at the historic truth. Yes. That that Joseph was quite a bit older than Mary, and that possibly or probably had children. And there you go. That's another option. Another option. They would be half because they were from. We don't know if Joseph was that much older. We again, we just don't know. We have tradition that says he was, but we don't have fact that says he was. Yes, but he very well could have been and had a wife that died. And God just knew he was the perfect father to help raise Jesus. Yes? But history doesn't verify those things. Doesn't verify. Yeah, history doesn't verify that Joseph was older. Although history mentions it, okay. But is history a verification? What I think is a verification is the fact of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is going to make sure his mother's not homeless. And I think he goes even deeper than that. He's going to, he, why does he give her to John? He knows John's going to take her away from Jerusalem. He knows John's not, you know, where, and even from there, he knows that John's one of his apostles. John, he knows whatever. Jesus is God. He knows where this is going. Why does he give her to John? Well, there's a fascinating historical account that tells us 
uh, one of the great uh, historical church fathers was a, I'll read you something here from, his name was Bede. He was from an old Anglo uh, uh, author and church father from, I think, the 5th century or the 6th century, 500s. I can't remember exactly when Bede lived. He was called the Venerable Bede. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. You've never heard of him, the Venerable Bede. Some of you might have. Well, this is what the Venerable Bede wrote. He said, Beyond the others, Jesus loved the one who, being a virgin, was chosen by him and remained forever a virgin. Now, stories handed down say the Christ called John from John's marriage ceremony where he wished to marry and on that account, he granted the more desirable sweetness of his own love to one whom he had withdrawn from fleshly pleasures. Isn't that fascinating? Venerable Bede, writing in the 500s or so, is saying the tradition that he's been taught was that John, the disciple, you know, James's brother, the sons of thunder, the tradition that he'd been taught was that John was called away from his own wedding when Jesus called him, that he was actually going to marry but he gave that up to follow Jesus and was forever virgin himself. And so that he gives venerable, and then I'll, continuing with Bede's words. Accordingly, when Christ was about to die on the cross, he commended his mother to John so that the virgin, meaning John, might watch over the virgin, meaning Mary, his mother, when he himself ascended to heaven after his death and resurrection. A son would not be lacking to his mother, whose chaste life would be protected by his chaste services. I find that very fascinating. I don't know, can't prove it. Don't know if John was uh, forever a celibate and a virgin at all. Don't know. But it's a beautiful thought. But what I do truly believe is that Mary was forever virgin. Now, before you get upset with me for teaching that, understand I'm in good company. Martin Luther believed that. John Calvin believed Mary was ever a virgin. Ulrich Zwingli, the radical reformer, believed Mary was ever a virgin. John Wesley, the father of our own theological movement, believed Mary was ever a virgin. You can't find a theological teacher in Christian history who didn't believe Mary was ever a virgin until the 20th century. Huh. That's right. That's what I thought when I learned that. History's always been on the side that Mary was forever virgin. But for some reason, modern, uh, what's the word, liberal modern theologians, uh, as they began to liberalize the Christian faith through the 20th century, began to reject that notion. Again, trying to distance themselves from historic Christianity. What they did was they distanced themselves from even their own Protestant roots, is what they did. So it's actually Protestant theology too, that Mary was ever a virgin. So I wanted to to teach that because I believe it's important. Why is it important? Because Mary's role here was bigger than just any human mother. Mary, and we see it reflected in John's writings, his own writings. Mary represents someone here. Mary represents purity. She represents the purity of God's people called to worship him. She, in that sense, she represents the true Israel, the, the, the true uh, bride, if you will. Okay, Jesus 
gospel shows us that he's the bridegroom. He talks about the bridegroom and the bride. The bride is the church, you know, we understand. But Mary is even a beautiful symbol of that pure, holy bride, the true Israel, whom we know is the church today. The church today is the true Israel. We have inherited that role. We've been grafted in, as the Apostle Paul talks about in, in the Roman letter. So uh, in, in the book of Revelation, do you remember what the, in the book of Revelation, I think it's chapter 12. Yes, it's chapter 12, verse 1. John sees a vision in that, and he talks about this woman clothed with the sun, with the crown of 12 stars over it. The woman historically, again, he sees Mary as this woman. That is, it talks about the woman gives birth. Okay, there's a, there's a strong metaphor here that that is Mary in Revelation chapter 12. Now, also back in the Old Testament, the prophet, was it Zephaniah or Zechariah? Zeph is one of those Zs. Let me look here in my notes. It was Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Zephaniah says... He talks about, behold, O daughter of Zion. There is this image that Zion, Zion is God's people, okay, in the Old Testament, the image of God's people, and, and this the daughter of Zion, that she is this perfect product, that Mary is the perfect product as the daughter of Zion. Why? Because it is understood that Mary, now I'm <laughs> going to get a little technical here, that Mary was in God's providence, looking out before the foundation of the world, saw all of time and all that would ever happen when he created it, knew that Mary would be the purest and that Mary would be the most faithful. And he chose Mary to be the mother of Christ. What did that mean, that he chose her to be the mother of Christ? It meant that she became a vessel of purity, that God was implanted within her womb. Now, sometimes, you know, there are some Protestants that have had trouble calling Mary Mother of God. Okay? You know, the famous Catholic prayer, Hail Mary, Mother of God. You know, pray for us. The, 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 some Protestants, well, we have trouble with that. Well, be careful before you say you have trouble with that. Okay? Because if we... Study our history all the way back. One of the very earliest councils of the church was about this very issue. Should Mary be called mother of God? Or should she just be called mother of Christ? Okay. And they argued over this in the early church. Three and, one. And, the, and the early church said you can't divide Christ from God. That he is both God and man. And so she must be the mother of God or Jesus wasn't God. So the, the word mother of God in the Greek meant, and this is the title they gave her. I'll write it on the board. Theotokos. Theotokos. This is the Greek word for the mother of God or the title given to Mary. If you are listening to the Greek language you're in a Greek church or a Greek liturgy, you're going to hear that a lot. Theotokos, Theotokos. It always means the Virgin Mary, who is the mother of God. And what that literally means, Theo is means God, okay, and tokos meaning to bear, the bearer of God into this world, okay. Now, not God the Father, she's not some demigod, a, a deity or anything like that, some weird foreign religion might teach. She's a human being just like you and me, but she was chosen specially by God the Father to bear God the Son into this world, and so 
she can rightfully and should be called the mother of God. As the mother, if she's not, here's what the early council said. That I think, uh, let me give my story thoughts here. Uh, the person that was arguing was uh, about this was, I believe, the Bishop Nestorius. If I'm getting, I may be wrong on that. Uh, I don't always have perfect recall on my historical figures. But I'm pretty, I, was, I think it was Nestorius, uh, who was saying, no, 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 let's just call her Mary, the mother of Christ, not Mary, the mother of God. And I believe it was St. Augustine. This was at the Council of Ephesus, I think. Uh, and I believe it was St. Augustine who argued and said, look, whatever, Mary has to be the mother of God because whatever was not assumed in, in, in Jesus' flesh, then that's not healed by his redemption, his crucifixion and, and his resurrection. In other words, he's all God and he's all man. Okay? All of him. We cannot divide. It's a, it's a mystery we cannot understand that Christ is God and he's also man. Okay. So I know that's deep and I know that's kind of troubling maybe to some of you, but just hang in there and just let it flow and see how it makes sense in the scripture here. Mary was a very special person. This is why historic Christianity has always honored Mary and her role as being the mother of God, and the number one disciple. <laughs> okay, who was the first disciple of Jesus? Andrew. Mary. <laughs> You're right, Andrew, when he was, we think of the 12 that were called. So it was a trick question. Mary. Mary knew what she had in her womb. The angel told her, hey, you're going to bear this, you know, my son. This is amazing. And Mary's been living with that all of her life, you know, this. And it says she, you know, remember after the angel Gabriel, this is in Luke chapter one, I think, when the angel Gabriel announces to her, you know, that she's going to bear uh, the, this child, the Messiah of the world. And she's like, you know, she bubbles over in song, you know, when she embraces the thought and when she gives her divine yes to God. And, and, and she says, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. He has done great things. You know, that's the, called the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. Beautiful prayer. Okay, so, so Mary has this unique special role. We know when she goes to visit Elizabeth, her cousin, to share this great news with her, we know that the Elizabeth's pregnant too. With who? John the Baptist, right. Cousins, they're cousins, so John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. And when Mary enters the room, pregnant with Jesus, son of God, Elizabeth, pregnant with John the Baptist, fully human, special prophet, though, what happens when he jumps in the womb? And the scripture records to us that, that, that in the presence of my Lord, wow. I mean, when Mary walked in the room, she was carrying special special uh, cargo here. You know, this is, so Mary can rightfully, Mary can rightfully be called the new ark. She's like an ark of the covenant. She's carrying God's presence into this world. I mean, these are beautiful thoughts. So before you just dismiss the Mary as Mary, she is the blessed Virgin Mary. In her prayer, she says, in her Magnificat, she says, henceforth from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Really, she should always be called the Blessed Virgin Mary because she was ever a virgin, and she is most blessed among all women. Okay? So now we can think through maybe that prayer we hear that the Catholics are so famous for. Hail Mary, full of grace, 
the Lord is with thee. Well, those are actually words right out of Scripture, okay? Those are words right out of, that's right out of the Gospel of Luke. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Again, right out of Scripture. Those are Elizabeth's words to her. Blessed art thou among women, all women that will ever be. And blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Okay, so the prayer continues. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Um, that's just a short little prayer. Okay, beautiful prayer. Now, I, I talked about this in last night's class, so I'll just mention it here. Um, Nazarenes, evangelicals, Protestants in general, don't have a tradition of praying, uh, asking the prayers of the saints, uh, talking to the saints and saying, pray for us. So that seems a little odd to some of you, I'm sure, most of you. But understand this. It is historic Christian teaching. And these are the words of the creed itself that I've taught you in here and written down for you. That we believe in the communion of the saints. That when we die, when, when we who are in the faith of Christ, when we die, our soul departs from our body to be with the Lord. But our communion with one another doesn't necessarily die. Okay, Because we're still alive. The dead are still alive. Jesus himself says, I'm not the God of the dead, I'm the God of the living. You know, God is the God of the living, not the dead, is how he says it, I believe, in the gospel. So... Who are the dead in Christ? The saints of God. What are they doing? Well, we don't know exactly what they're doing, except that we do know that they're with Christ. And we do know from the book of Revelation, again, John that wrote it here, the guy we're studying, his gospel, John that wrote it in the book of Revelation, he says that when you look in, when he sees the vision of the throne room of God and he sees the worship of Almighty God in heaven and he sees uh, the, the great altar and it says that that there were uh, the saints have fallen, the white-robed saints have fallen down in in honor and glory and prayer and worship before them, and it says they're holding golden bowls full of incense, and that those are the prayers of the saints. So, so what are the what are our saints in heaven? What are our brothers and sisters, our mothers, our fathers, our loved ones who died in the faith of Jesus Christ, who are now saints of heaven? What are they doing? They're praying for us. I don't know about you, but I want their prayers. I need their prayers. I need your prayers. We need to pray for each other. And all that historic Christian faith is saying is that it's no different. Once they die, they don't just stop praying for us. They don't just forget about us. Now they see everything through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Okay, They're healed. They don't, it's, it's not that they're, they're, they have any power. They have zero power other than the power to pray in the very presence of Christ. For us, so that's why you, you're, you can go all the way. You can go to Rome. You can go to ancient places, and you can find the tombs written on the tombs of some of the very first-century stuff. You know, some of the earliest uh, Christian burial sites, and it says right on there, "Saint So and So, pray for us." They just inscribed it in, in granite because they, there was this instinctive belief that just because they died. They weren't dead. They're still in the presence of God, and now they're even closer to God and that they can pray for us. So um, some, the only, only argument that I really have ever heard theologically for not asking a saint to pray for you is this argument, and I've heard this. There's, believe it or not, you can Google this stuff. There are podcasts and 
stories and all kinds of things about this kind of stuff and arguments, if you will, discussions, debates. And the Protestant guy will say, well, it's just not right to contact the dead. Uh, you know, in the Samuel, you know, it talks about how Samuel came up in that vision. And, you know, the Old Testament talks about necromancy and not spiritualists contacting the dead. Well, that has nothing to do with prayer with the saints because the saints aren't dead. That would be contacting evil spirits and the dead who are in hell, not the dead of heaven. Okay, Because there's no dead in heaven. They're all alive. Jesus said that. We, we learned that earlier in John chapter 5. Remember the words of John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who believes him who sent me, he who hears my word, sorry, let me get it right. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, meaning the Father, has passed out of death and into life and does not come into judgment. Death is but a doorway we all pass through, and we pass through that when we come to faith. On the day they lay your bodies down and my body down in the ground, that at whatever day the doctor says, he's gone. That is not the day we died. The day we died was the day we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? And Jesus said it. Jesus himself said it. So don't argue with me. Argue with Jesus if you don't want to believe that. And he said, you've now passed out of death and into life. So when our body stops breathing and our heart stops ticking, we're still alive. The real us, which is way more than just a body. The spirit, the soul. This stuff gets me excited, okay? So if I sound a little passionate about it, it's because I want us to get to a place where we understand the fullness of the faith of Christ. The fullness of what it means to be in faith of Jesus Christ and the presence of the glorious company of saints, both those on earth and those in the heavens. So that when you hear the creed and it says, or like the Apostles' Creed specifically that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Catholic Church, meaning universal, and the communion of the saints, you know what it's saying now. Um, so, why is this such an important verse? Because Mary is such an important person. John had to include this in the gospel. Son, behold your mother. What he is saying, Jesus says, son, meaning John, son, behold your mother. What is, what is the relationship between John and Mary now? Mother and son. And they represent all of us. Mary is our mother too. He's giving Mary to the church to be the mother of the church. That's what he's doing. Not just some person who said yes to God and had a baby once upon a time in Bethlehem. And Oh, well. She died. You know, now there's all kinds of, there, there is all kinds of, honestly, there's all kinds of folklore and, and, and stuff that has grown up around Mary that is not really right. Okay, there has been, trust me, in different cultures and different times, some of it's gone over the top. I really, I'll admit that. And I think most good scholars on the Catholic side will admit that too. But that's not a reason to reject the understanding because some people go overboard with it, okay? It's not a reason to reject the understanding that she has the place of highest honor. Now, what happened to Mary when she died? As I teach you today, uh, this is August the 15th. Yesterday was August the 14th on the Christian calendar, and it is known as the Dormition, the Dormition of Mary. 
Dormition means the falling asleep. Yesterday is the day that is commemorated, at least in the Eastern Church. I think it is in the Western Church too, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, may have a different day on the calendar. But in the Eastern Church, Mary has always been, uh, it's her day to celebrate the feast of her falling asleep, meaning her death. Okay. Now, the, the church, the Eastern Church, takes no position on whether Mary actually uh, was, uh, they, they, how she was assumed, body and soul into heaven or something like that. But there is a great understanding that she, A, she did fall asleep, but she was taken to be in heaven with Christ. Um, this is, this is a, actually, you know, historic Christian teaching. You can go back and study it. Um, you know, if he took Elijah <laughs> and if he took, uh, what's the, Enoch, why wouldn't he take Mary? You know, who, who's more important here? So I have no problem with that. I just wanted you to know it's interesting that we fell on this scripture on the very day after the dormition of Mary. So, moving on here, um, Jesus is sending a great signal to us all that he is, Mary is our spiritual mother and she's watching over the church and praying for the church. She is the queen mother, if you will. Um, I, I want to follow with you here, since we've got time, a couple more verses. A couple of more verses. Now, in verses 28 to 30, we hear Jesus' final words from the cross. Okay? Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. That's Jesus' next to last words from the cross. But here comes his final thoughts from the cross. Verse 28, let's read together. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A bowl full of vinegar stood there. So they put a sponge full of the vinegar on hyssop and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. With those words, John records the physical death of Jesus Christ. Let's stop and think about those words. Because he's very, he's given us a lot of unique details. Jesus says, I thirst. And it says it's to fulfill scripture. What scripture is he talking about? Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a psalm of David that was written in David's dire times when he was on the run and, and uh, feeling like he was uh, all alone in the world. And uh, this is what it says in Psalm 69. In verse 21 specifically, it says, They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Well, David, the life of King David, who, who's been <clears throat> given gall for food and vinegar for drink. Let's, let's discuss what that means. Because interestingly enough, in Matthew's Gospel, and I know we're not studying Matthew's Gospel, but in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, this scene on the cross a little bit earlier on the cross, Matthew records that it says they they gave Jesus a drink from a, a you know they used a sponge on a stick in those days you know <clears throat> and reach it up to the cross and it says they gave him 
wine mixed with gall. And it says when Jesus, when it touched his lips and he tasted it, he rejected it. That's Matthew throws that little tidbit in. Gall. And now we hear about vinegar. Well, if we look in the, the Greek word used here is called uh, ozos. Okay, I'll write it over here. Ozos. Do we know that one, Brooke? No. Okay, ozos. This is, uh, this is a common wine, bitter, sour wine that's been mixed with vinegar and water to cheapen it, to make it go further, but it still has some anesthetizing properties, you know, to kind of dull pain. It was a cheap, this was an everyday drink of poor people in that day and age. And it was common that the soldiers, Roman soldiers, drank it. It was common for them to give it to a prisoner who's hurting or something, just kind of numb their pain a little bit. But it, ozos, that's the word used in Greek right here instead of vinegar. Okay, but it's, it's a wine mixed with vinegar. Okay, it's a wine mixed with vinegar and water. And so we go back to the Old Testament and we see David being prophesied to have both been given gall. What is gall? Gall is a bitter herb. See, so it's a drink mixed with a bitter herb, you know. Um, too much of it can even be poisonous from what I've read. Um, it's a harsh thing. But uh, so, so David, Matthew records gall, and then, of course, John records later the vinegar, perfectly fulfilling Psalm 29, because David is a type of Christ to come, okay? David king, you know, Christ reigns in David's lineage. And so we see both a, in the life of David, there was a real fulfillment. I'm sure somewhere somebody gave him that to drink and eat, and that's why he wrote about it in the Psalms. But there's a prophetic meaning that's fulfilled in the life of Christ right here in Scripture. So Jesus does accept this because it's a drink that he would have known about. And he needed, why does it say, why did Jesus say, I thirst? Think about all that he's experienced on the cross. It, 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 if you ever talk, like right now, okay, I'm going to stop because I'm thirsty. I'm going to take a drink of this. Water. Oh, love water. Okay. Quenches your thirst. But liquid, he, he needed liquid to quench his thirst. Okay. He, he literally had something. The most important words he's going to speak from the cross, <laughs> he needs to say. Okay? And he needed a little bit of drink. And it fulfilled the scripture that what kind of drink it was. And he could get those last words out. Those last words, it is finished. In the Greek, tetelestai. Tetelestai. Which is from the Greek word, the Greek verb, Teleo, which we learned a few weeks ago. What does Teleo mean? Telestai. It is finished. It is complete. It means finished perfectly. It's been fully consummated and brought to an end. Jesus now, the last act from the cross was to make sure that Mary was honored and to make sure that John would take care of her and to make sure that everyone would understand her place in the kingdom. And now I can give up. Jesus, and, and it's very important for us to note that when Jesus received it, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus had always said, no one takes my life. I give it up. Jesus is in control, even at the moment of death on the cross. He's in control. He chooses the moment of death. 
And he knows it's time. It's now finished. The Roman soldiers didn't kill him. They crucified him. Crucifixion is a process. We have to be careful sometimes with how we talk. We say, oh, Jesus, they killed him on the cross, you know. They didn't. Okay? That's that's really not theologically accurate. Nobody killed Jesus. They crucified him. They put him through a process that ultimately leads to death for anyone that's crucified. But Jesus willingly gave up his own life. He chose the moment of death because he is the king of glory and the king of life. He is the creator of the universe. He is life itself. And he physically lays down his life for his sheep, the good shepherd right there on the cross. He could have stayed on the cross forever. Could have stayed there forever. Could have stayed there as long as he wants. And what would have happened had he stayed there long enough, they would have come by and tried to break his legs just like they did the other guys, which will get ahead of myself in the story here. We're going to learn that they do that because they need to make sure he's dead because he happens to be being crucified on Passover, the eve of the Passover. It's about to be the Passover at sundown. Got to get him off the cross. But Jesus chose the time. It's fascinating, absolutely, just a few hours. Crucifixion usually took a few days for the human body to die. And they wanted it to last because it was agonizing and it was torture. It was ultimately finally outlawed by the Roman Empire, but it was and is still today considered to be the most heinous form of of death penalty, if you will. Um, So Jesus is in control, even here on the cross. And he's he's fulfilling scripture, even here on the cross. All these words that John is giving us are so important because they fulfill uh, scripture and they fulfill it. Nothing happens outside of God's plan. And when we see how important the words of the Gospels are, we see all these little details that John brings to us. Um, they're important. We wouldn't have them if we didn't really get into study, if we didn't really get into the original. Very important reasons for all of this uh, that we're talking about. Now, I, I want to. I know I've dumped a lot out there today. <laughs> In just four verses, we've talked about a lot, and some of it may be totally new to you. Um, thoughts, questions. I don't want you to just walk out today without thoughts and questions. You don't have to agree with me, but yes, go ahead. Why do you suppose the idea of Mary's virginity was taken off the table, so to speak? Taken off the table by who? Well, the liberal Protestant theologians of the 20th century? I think that's a good question. I think the reason it was taken off the table is because they were trying to drive a wedge between Catholic thought, okay, what they perceived was Roman Catholic thought, okay, and who they were, and the reformers didn't go far enough. And they were reforming a lot of things, okay? So understand that it wasn't until the 20th, in the 20th century, the early part especially, the early to mid 20th century, there's some liberal theologians that began to infiltrate almost all the mainline churches and all the mainline cemeteries. And their teaching was not only that Mary, well, not only was Mary not a virgin, uh, not forever, they went as far as to say she wasn't even a virgin at all. They don't believe, there's many Christians today, they claim to be Christians, who don't even teach the virgin birth. What can they base anything on? They rewrite scripture. They rewrite it to fit their own need. 
because they're trying to make it fit a modern context. Those are just old stories that meant maybe that meant something to them, but it's not necessarily true today. And that's, I mean, they've, that's why they say that the scriptures are not even inspired. There's many churches that say the scriptures are not even inspired. I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of liberal thought. And I use liberal, not in a, I'm kind of using it in a, in a pejorative way. Um, and that's probably not the original meaning of the word. But I have to base it on something. You know, it's liberal compared to traditional conservative thought about scripture and Jesus and Mary. It's a great question. But, you know, there's awful lot of it out there. Yeah, it breaks your heart. <laughs> does. It does. Other thoughts, questions, comments? None? All minds clear? Or confused more and just don't, don't get a little set on it for a while? I always thought that uh, when Jesus said to his mother, behold, this is your, your son, there. And it really meant that uh, because there's a tradition, Jewish tradition, that your kinship, you took care of your kinship you know, mm-hmm. all the way through the whole life. They, mm-hmm. they uh, always lived together and everything else, and he wanted to make sure that, that his mother was taken care of. Which, you, you said that, but I, I thought that was really the only reason I didn't realize this. No, and you're, you're right. You're partially right, because that is the tradition, and he was making sure she was taken care of. But why John if he had other brothers and sisters? That's the key. We have to connect the dots. He didn't have other brothers and sisters. Mary didn't specifically have other blood children. I, I just fully believe that. I, it's the only thing that makes sense out of Scripture and history. Go ahead. Was Go ahead. Wasn't James the yeah, James is considered, when you read the book of James, it says an epistle of James, the brother of our Lord. Again, what does that word brother mean? Was he his half-brother because he maybe was from Joseph's previous marriage, if Joseph had one uh, that had died? Or was he a cousin? It's just hard to say. But, but the early church said dogmatically, we know he wasn't a full-blood brother because he's, there just weren't any other children. So that's a good question. But he can rightfully be called. James is the brother of our Lord. We just have to understand what we mean by that. And it rightfully says Jesus had other brothers in Scripture. I think it even names them, Joseph and James, and I can't remember all their names now. Yeah. But even today we call somebody that, that, that we know is a Christian brother. Yes, yes. brothers. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord, aren't we? Yeah. There's that beautiful context. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are one family. Back then, if that were true, then it could have been a fact that he wasn't actually a brother, just, just called brother, brother. Christ, brother right? God. Right, yeah. Could have been just close, close as brothers, yeah. Beautiful thoughts. You're catching on. You're catching on. Uh, and, I, and I realize this is this is not, you know, some of this stuff, some, some people might say, oh, Brad, why do you even fuss with teaching some of this stuff? Well, you know, it, it's, not, it's not germane to whether you believe in Christ or not, but it is germane to whether you experience the fullness of Christian faith. And I believe there is a beauty and a fullness to the Christian faith that we need to tap into and that we in our little hundred-year short history as, as uh, Nazarenes just don't have all the answers to and haven't necessarily, you know, we weren't born 
uh, 2,000 years ago as a movement of God. We were born to preach holiness, and I'm so glad we were, because the holiness message must be preached. But that doesn't mean we have to reject the historic Christian faith either. So that's that's where I'm blending it all in here, (laughs) trying to anyway. I appreciate you bringing out the the, uh, death When you die. Oh, thank you. That is that is that is so important for us to get a hold of. And those of you in here who have lost loved ones, and I've done some of your funerals of your loved ones, I want you to know they're very much alive. You're still very much connected in your spirits, not physically. But you know what's amazing is sometimes even spirits. Spiritual can almost feel physical, can't it? When you just feel them and sense them in their presence. Yes. That makes me think. When my daddy died, that hmm. he was he was breathing really, really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, just struggling. And then all of a sudden, he's just he just calmed. Hmm. And I had a hold of one hand, and mother had a hold of the other hmm. hand. Wow. And he opened his eyes, and he raised up in bed, and he looked. Wow. And he saw. Oh, yeah. I mean, he just had this peaceful look on his face. Amen. Peace, peace, peace. Peace that comes in the presence of Christ. Christ doesn't leave us alone. Remember the story of Jesus talking about the, the, the beggar Lazarus dying and being carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Why would Jesus talk this way? Unless he wanted us to understand that we... We are in a spiritual world, and there are angels all around us, especially at the time of our death. <laughs> you know, and, and Christ is with us. Christ is never not with us, okay? Even and especially at the time of our death. Uh, uh, wow. My first husband's grandfather, when he died, had been paralyzed for quite a while. He couldn't use his arms. But he was there when he died, and he said, he said, all of a sudden, his arms went up, and he said, can't you see them? The angels wow. are coming for me. Wow. That's, that, so. None of us knows how we'll pass, but wow, what a way to go. You know, gifted with that final vision, uh, that, that, that vision that just ushers us into, I don't know what yours will be, I don't know what mine will be, <coughs> but, uh, you know, we can think of the scripture, 2 Corinthians. When Paul is speaking about this very thing, he's speaking about the death of our loved ones, and he's trying to minister to people who have lost their loved ones and help them understand their faith. And he says in, in the last part of chapter 4, he says, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. He's talked about all the struggles we have in life. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. You know, all those verses, you're familiar with those. And then he finally says, but therefore... We do not lose heart because even though the outwardly we're decaying, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction, the Apostle Paul calls death, the process of death, a momentary light affliction. He says, for this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So we keep our eyes not on that which we see, the flesh. We keep our eyes on that which is unseen. 
Because the things we can see are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. Christ in heaven, the angels, our loved ones, the saints of heaven, all of this is unseen. But with eyes of faith, we see it. Okay, we see it. Beautiful thoughts. Wow, it's 12 noon. How about that? We started and ended on time today. Thank you for your presence today. Thank you for your thoughts, your sharing. Uh, This is the most important thing we do, to talk about the power of God and his scriptures in our lives and the beauty and truth they want to bring to us. So let's offer a prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, how can we say thank you for gifting us with these beautiful words of the Apostle John? Beautiful words of yours from the cross to your mother and and the gift of her to us even today. And the gift that you have always been with us and you always will be with us. So remind us of these beautiful treasures and nuggets of wisdom. Not, not because I teach them. Let us all be Bereans. Let us all just explore history and scripture and everything and make sure it's true. But, but Father, cover over anything I teach that's, that's wrong. I don't want to mislead anyone. Bless those things that I've said that are true, though, because they're your words, and we we endeavor to study and to learn and to live your words. Uh, Ask this now in the strong name of the one who died for us, the one who laid down his life for us, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God, forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.